Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. trust you will have your text open to Colossians. Our plan is a little bit different than uh, when we went through Hebrews. Hebrews, I promised you one sermon per chapter. In Colossians, the game plan is that we will look at every verse, at every word in every verse, at every syllable in every word. And if I can manage it, I will preach on the gold leaf on the edge of the paper. So um, we, we may be a little bit of time here in Colossians, but it will be well worthwhile. The, the question is, well, why, why Colossians? Uh, Colossae uh, the, is the name of the city. Colossae was a city in what is now southeastern Turkey. Uh, at the time in the Roman Empire, it was known as the province of Asia. Uh, if you were to start on a journey from Colossae and go down the river, you would then run into the city of Laodicea. Across the river from Laodicea was the city of Heropolis. And down the river a little bit more, when you finally got to the port city, you would have arrived at Ephesus. And so uh, that gives you sort of a linear idea, at least, of the relationship of Colossae to the city of Ephesus. Uh, we don't know who started the church in Colossae, uh, exactly uh, what we surmise is that a man by the name of Epaphras, who was probably a citizen of Colossae, traveled down the river, wound up in Ephesus for some reason. There he heard the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Epaphras becomes a believer, and then he takes this gospel with him as he returns home, and he proclaims Christ, and a church springs up in Colossae. Uh, Colossae was a very average city. There was nothing that special about it. It had uh, seen its heyday many decades before, many hundreds of years before. Uh, at this point, it had decreased in size. Uh, it was a, a healthy city, a thriving city, but there wasn't much special about it. It was a place to go through to get there. And uh, so Colossae was sort of, if you will, it was sort of like a suburb or a bedroom community of Laodicea and Heropolis, uh, and which were major cities. So in other words, if you were to look up the English translation of Colossae, you would see the word Waldorf. Um, <laughs> now the environment in which the Colossian church existed was the environment of the Greco-Roman Empire, the, the empire controlled by Rome, but that was infused with the language and the thought patterns of Greece. In this world, in, in the world of the Colossian Christians, you had a lot of things going on as dynamics in the culture. First of all, you had the, uh, the political dynamics, and that was the power of Rome. Uh, Rome was very much uh, concerned with exercising its power. It had a legal system uh, that was flexible. And when I say flexible, that meant that the Romans themselves were not bound to it. 
and so uh, as you tried to obey the Roman laws, if you obeyed the Roman law and yet the Roman judge decided that he didn't like it, uh, he could still find you guilty of whatever he wanted to find you guilty of. And so the power of Rome was all pervasive. It was throughout the, uh, the area. One thing about Rome, you didn't want to kick against Rome. If you, if you went against the tide of Roman society, culture, and power, uh, you, were, you were going to receive the, the brunt of their irritation with you. Um, and so you didn't want to raise your head up too high as the Romans were coming by. It just might get knocked off. Now, you haven't had that experience. Uh, you don't know what it's like to be in a culture where if you say the wrong thing, people will denounce you. Uh, you've probably never been in a culture where if you have the wrong opinion according to what everybody else is thinking, suddenly you're a bigot, suddenly you're narrow-minded, suddenly uh, you're an evil human being that deserves to be taken out and dropped into the uh, lowest part of the ocean. You've never lived in uh, the kind of culture where you had to really watch what you said because you, you said, even if you said the right thing, but you said it the wrong way, the powers that would be would come on top of you and would decide that, well, you need sensitivity training. Or maybe you need to lose your job. You're just an evil person. We can't have you around here. So that's what the Colossian Christians were encountering. They were encountering the, the power of Rome in a culture that knew you better you had better um, obey what Rome had to say. Um, they also lived in a culture that was dominated by Greek thought and Greek philosophy. Um, the, the Greeks sort of invented philosophy. They needed a hobby one day, and so they came up with philosophy. Um, but there were, there were all kinds of schools of philosophy. You had the Peripatetics, you had the, uh, the Stoics, really more Latin, but the uh, uh, the uh, Socratic schools and, and on and on went. So you had all these different philosophies floating around and the idea was, well, we're all after the, after the truth and while I think your philosophy is wrong, um, I'm, I'm entitled to my philosophy, you, you, you keep your philosophy to yourself. After all, we're, we're talking about the same thing. Um, sort of like today when people say things like, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live it out and you're honest about it and so forth. Um, the, the Greeks had a word for that. It was balderdash. Us. And so, um, uh, but anyway, they, they lived in a society in, in, in which thought was just that way. And so there were a lot of different thought patterns coming at you all the time. It's sort of like their version of cable TV. You know, you have all those channels and they're just coming at you. and. And uh, you ever wonder why you're buying 275 channels when you only watch three of them? Yeah. You do only watch three of them, don't you? <laughs> it's a sin to watch more than three channels of TV. <laughs> but they had all these different points of view and all this, all this different stuff uh, coming at them. So they had the, the Greek culture coming at them. And then they had the religious sort of environment of the day coming at them. There was the religion of the Olympian gods, the, the Zeus, Jupiter gods, the, the Mars, Aries god, um, you know, th those kinds of things. And actually, the, the, the people of that day were pretty open-minded when it came to religion, um, as long as you didn't buck the system too badly. But if you wanted to believe that, that Zeus was the, the primary god and worshiped Zeus, that was okay. If you're really into Asclepius, that was okay, because after all, that, that he, he spoke to you. But maybe you really wanted to get into this Athena worship thing, and that was okay, and, and all these different kinds of religions, but you could pick your God, and it was okay, okay, because we were, after all, all worshiping the same thing, we're all heading in the 
same direction. Now, the Jews, I mean, they had the audacity to go to people and say, you know, your God's not a God at all. What? Yeah, yeah, we got the true God, the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the gods you have, they're no gods at all. Well, the folks didn't like that much, but the Jews were so hard to deal with that after a while they said, that's fine, just keep it in the synagogue. And that's what the, you know, a large part of what the Jews did. But along came the Christians, and it's not just Jewish Christians, but now you also have Gentile Christians, and these Gentile Christians are going to their neighbors who are broad-minded religiously, and they're saying things like, you know that idol you worship? No power at all, it doesn't even exist. You know that temple you go to? Complete lie. There's only one way, one truth, one life. It's Jesus Christ. Your God is no God at all. There's only one God, and that's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That didn't sit well. And so uh, this kind of intolerance on on the part of the Christians got them into trouble. And so if if you were part of the Colossian church in the city of Colossae, then you had all these things sort of going on, the power of Rome, the power of Greece, and the thought of Greece, and and, and religion. Now, one of the things about the religion was they they were interested in new things as long as you didn't tell them they were wrong. I mean, you could invent a religion if you like. One of the most popular religions... Um, was a, a, a religion called the cult of Isis. Now, when I say Isis, that's the name of a goddess. It's not the Isis you're reading about in the papers today. Uh, but uh, this, this cult of Isis said, uh, oh, it had everything. It had intrigue, had sex, had death, you know, had ritual. I mean, it was, it was a great religion. A lot of people really liked this, this religion of the cult of um, Isis and, and Serapis. So um, you had all these sort of things. Oh, by the way, the religion of Isis came from Egypt came out of Egypt. So now you're in, in the city of, of, of philosophy and you got the Romans, you got the Greeks, you got the Egyptians, you got all this sort of stuff coming along and uh, it, that, that's just the atmosphere that you breathe. That's just the world that you live in. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. Suppose we go to the, wall, the mall in Washington, D.C. Go to the east, uh, west end of the mall. Uh, you're standing somewhere between the Washington Monument and, and, and the Lincoln Memorial. So it means you're about knee deep in water. I just realized that. You know. So, uh, but anyway, as, as you're standing there, all, uh, way over there on the other side of the cherry trees is the Jefferson Memorial. You, you know what the Jefferson Memorial looks like? Can you see that in your mind? If you can't, here, here's what it is. It's a Roman temple. It's patterned after the Pantheon in Rome. Uh, and the reason for that is that in building a monument to Jefferson, it seemed appropriate, let's establish law. Uh, in, in theory, Jefferson and the Founding Fathers brought out uh, the best parts of, of the Roman legal system with checks and balances and a constitution that governed things. And, you know, the, there was a law that, that determined things, not the whim and whimsy of, of some human ruler. Uh, of course, they were a little bit misguided on the history of that, but that was the goal. That was, that was the ideal, and that's, that's, you know, how our country comes into existence. So you, you have there the power of Roman law in Jefferson. Now look over here and you've got the Lincoln Memorial. You know what it looks like. It's a Greek temple. Trust me, it's a Greek temple. That's, that's, that's what it looks like. And it's not an accident. Um, if you remember back in the Civil War, um, the North and the South are fighting with each other. Um, the real issue is slavery. Can uh, states have slaves? Some states are saying, yes, we can. Other states are saying, no, you can't. And so the, the Southern states because they want to hang on to their slaves, they say, well, we're just going to leave. We're going to leave the country. We're going to secede from the Union. The Constitution lets us do that. Now, here's the problem that Abraham Lincoln has during the Civil War. Constitutionally and legally, those states were right. 
There's nothing in the Constitution that said you couldn't just leave. There's nothing there, you know, in, in fact, the legal theory that we entered into this, this compact voluntarily, we can leave voluntarily. And actually, in, in many ways, the only reason Lincoln was able to, to hold the Union together was because he, he was able to, to point to places like Fort Sumter and say, you know, that's federal property, it belongs to us. And the state said, no, it didn't, so they fire on Fort Sumter. You think I've lost my way here. So Lincoln gets to a little town called Gettysburg, and he's going to deliver an address, and just try to talk about what's this civil war about. And he can't really talk about the Constitution because the Constitution had uh, slavery uh, worked into it you know, as, the, as the great compromise. You remember that? Okay, those of you who, who okay, okay, you remember that, the great compromise. So you have slavery in the Constitution, and he really can't talk about that. So what does he do? He says, you know, our country was founded about 84 years ago on this great principle. All men are created equal. Where did that come from? It's in the Declaration of Independence, not in the Constitution of the United States. It's not actually the law of the land. It's just the expression of the ideas of the Founding Fathers. In other words, what Lincoln does is he appeals to a philosophical principle that is higher than the law itself. By the way, this is why we need the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, because a nation that's not under something will be over everyone else. And we as, well, I, I was getting ready. Okay, I'm going to say it. You know. We have the right as citizens of the United States to turn to our government and say, you know, you're not really in charge, you're just stewards. Amen. Okay. That's what Lincoln was doing. He was bringing in a philosophical ideal. Uh, by the way, <laughs> uh, just go, go to the Lincoln Memorial and read there inscribed on the wall his second inaugural address. You'll read one of the greatest theological statements about suffering ever written by an American. Okay. Now. So anyway, uh, why, why is it a, a Greek temple? Because he, he thought thought and principle and truth trumped law. So Jefferson is doing law. Lincoln is doing thought and philosophy. You have Jefferson Memorial, that's Roman. You have the Lincoln Memorial, which is basically Greek. Now, if you're not confused yet, just turn this way and you see the Washington Monument. What is that? It's Egyptian. It's an obelisk. Now, originally, uh, the, the, uh, the Washington Monument uh, was designed to be an obelisk arising out of um, a, a building structure that was going to be a Roman structure with Greek columns. So they ran out of money, they couldn't build it, they, the ground wasn't right for it and all that business. But essentially what we're left with is this confused Egyptian obelisk rising you know, for Washington. What does that stand for? Nobody knows. They just liked obelisks back then. Yeah. I mean, seriously, that, 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 that was basically it. There might be some Freemasonry going on in there, but we don't know. So if you just stand in the mall in Washington, D.C., you got the Romans, you got the Greeks, you got the Egyptians, and I haven't even talked about the, uh, the original Smithsonian building. I don't even know what that is. Go to the White House, that's neo-federalism or uh, something. It's patterned after a house in Dublin, Ireland. Um, you know, and you, you go to the Capitol building, you got the dome there, that's patterned after St. Peter's. You want to talk about confusion, then any wonder we're in the trouble we're in. But that's where you are in Colossae. 
You've got all this stuff coming at you, all these things coming at you. And that's where we are in our world today. That's where we are in our culture today. There are so many voices coming at us, so many dynamics coming at us, so many elements of our culture that, that are declaring what's right and what ought to be. And as uh, people walking in this world, we're breathing in the air of our culture. Now let me remind you, if you breathe polluted air, you get polluted lungs. And if you get polluted lungs, you get polluted blood, and polluted blood pollutes the whole body. And so as we're in this environment, we're breathing all, in all this pollution you know, and all this distortion. And that's why we start saying nutty things that sound just like the world. That's why you, you, you've got people who claim the name of Christ whose buildings have a cross on the top of them just going along and they sound like the latest uh, uh, sort of self-appointed uh, social engineer. You know? And while they're talking about things, you know, well, we've got to have tolerance and love and acceptance and all that, you look at it and you say, why am I listening to that? By the way, it's also why we get nutty things going on in conservative churches. Really nutty things going on in conservative churches. Because we live in an atmosphere and we breathe in this air and in comes the pollution that says, your life is defined by how much stuff you've got. You are a success if you have a lot of money. You're a, a success if you have, a, a, you know, extra vacation time, if you can sort of chart your own course. And you, you are a success if you have a lot of material junk. And so we breathe in this and we decide, well, you know, that sounds good to me. And then we start hearing sermons about how, well, you know, God wants you rich. That's, that's essentially it. God wants you rich. If you give him $10, God will give you $1,000. And again, I remind you, God won't cash the check. I will. That's the way it works. Or, you know, if it, 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 here's what the Christian gospel is all about. God loves you just the way you are. If you can't get that promotion you want. Anybody who's laughing right now, shame on you. But that's because we're breathing the air of our culture. And we are just parroting back what the culture says because... We haven't thought about it, and we think, well, these things must be true. Everybody's telling me it's true. And so we wind up, and we sound just like the world around us. Now, I'm suggesting to you that this is what was going on in the church of Colossae. Um, scholars aren't exactly positive what the problem was in the Colossian church. Uh, you know, when we were reading Galatians, uh, it, it was very apparent the problem was some teachers had come in and said, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You also have to be a Jew. Therefore, adding to your Christian faith, we must add works of the law. That was the problem. Paul talks about grace and the absolute grace of God and how it's salvation by faith through, uh, by grace through faith alone. So Galatians, we pretty much knew. Hebrews was, was pretty clear that uh, they were facing persecution. And because of persecution, they wanted to fall back away from their Christian convictions and maybe return to the synagogue or just keep their heads down and not follow through on their Christian faith. And the book of Hebrews was about how, no, don't shrink back, but continue in faith and latch on to Jesus Christ. So we knew what the problem was in Galatians. We knew what it was pretty much in, in Hebrews. But we come to Colossians and we're not sure. Scholars say, well, they used to say, said, well, the problem in Colossians was Gnosticism. <laughs> How many want electron Gnosticism right now? 
Okay, I've, I've, got the, uh, I've got the note. You don't really need to know much about Gnosticism. All you need to know is it was just sort of a harebrained uh, uh, sort of philosophical, philosophical scheme to try and uh, uh, understand things. And what happened was people would come in and say, well, you know what you're believing in Jesus is just like what we did. Now, the problem with that, you know, say, well, it's Gnosticism, um, and it has to do with some of the language in, um, um, in Colossians. For instance, when, when Paul says that Jesus is the fullness of God, he says he is the pleroma. Pleroma is the Greek word, and that was a technical term in Gnosticism. Okay. Now, the problem with that is that Gnosticism doesn't really exist until like 100 years later. So the scholar said, well, it may not be Gnosticism, but it's proto-Gnosticism. Somebody pointed out and said, yeah, but that doesn't take into account that elsewhere in there he says, look, you're being led astray by people who say you have to worship on certain days and, and observe Sabbaths and new moons. All that sounds Jewish. So the scholar said, well, it's a Jewish proto-Gnosticism. Somebody pointed out, so yeah, but what about the passage where he says you're being led astray by people who take their stand on visions and angels and things like that? That sounds like mysticism. Yes, it's a mystical Jewish proto-Gnosticism. So uh, what we're going to do is root out mystical Jewish proto-Gnosticism in our midst. And if you are a Jewish mystical proto-Gnostic, you're in trouble. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Here's what's going on. These folks are filled with the culture around them, and it has resulted in a mishmash of ideas. It's a technical term. It's just a mishmash of ideas. Take a little bit of that. Why? Because everybody knows that. Take a little bit of this. Why? Because everybody believes that. Take a little of this. Why? Because everybody does that. And, and they, they did not stop to consider, well, what is actually going on here? They didn't look at their culture through the lens of their faith in Jesus Christ. They had a blurry, kind of a murky understanding of what was going on. And so this sort of thoughtless, um, unfocused uh, pursuit of Christ was letting them wander all over the map in their culture and in their city and in their lives. And Paul writes to the Colossian Christians, and basically what he's saying is, you need to focus all this stuff going on in your culture around you, you need focus. You need clarity in a murky world. You need clarity. Let me, let me illustrate that. Look at chapter 3, book of Colossians, chapter 3. Verse 2. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's it. So, you know, your, your mind and your thought and your understanding, your faith, your, all that's being, being pulled in a thousand different directions. Look, put your mind on things above, not things of earth. Focus on where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't go along with the, with, with the flow of the culture around you. Don't just be, uh, be a, a, a thoughtless sort of sponge that's taking in everything that, that, that the culture would say, but rather focus on Christ. Have an absolute focus on things above. Now, the way this is going to work out, in chapter 1, he's going to tell us who Christ is. Chapter 2, he'll tell us what Christ does. And in chapter 3, he'll talk about what we need to do as a result of that. And in chapter 4, he'll say goodbye. All right? 
So that's basically the roadmap that we have in Colossians. But it comes to this point of having focus and clarity on who Christ is in a murky world so that we are not drifting around and led astray and become people with thought patterns and understandings determined by the world and not by Christ. So that's where we are in looking at the book of Colossians. That's why we're looking at Colossians, so we can have clarity on who Christ is and how we should live as a result. You got that? All right. All that was introduction. I can do this. We'll just just go through it quickly. Look at verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, now, a lot of years ago, the old building, uh, after church one Sunday night, uh, an usher, I think it was an usher or a deacon, came up to me and said, Pastor, there's, there's a girl here. She wants to be a Christian. I said, this is great. You know, here, here's somebody who's been reading, studying. You know, the spirit has moved in her heart. She wants to be a Christian. Yeah, I'll go talk to her. So I sat down with her. She was a, a young girl in the late teens, early 20s. I said, you want to be? yes, I want to be a Christian, okay? Well, you know, the apostle Paul says, she said, who's Paul? I said, well, in the book of Romans. She said, what's the book of Romans? I said, in the New Testament. She said, what's the New Testament? We started at the very, very beginning. As best I could, in the brief span of time, I talked about how God had sent his son to die for her sins and that if she would put her faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, she would be saved. She said, that's what I want. I don't understand this, folks. This is why, you know, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Here's somebody who didn't know a thing, not a thing. All she knew was that God had put it in her heart, I want to be a believer in Jesus Christ. She gave her heart to Jesus. She was baptized, was a regular attender at the church. She moved out of, out of the county, and within weeks, we got a letter from another church saying, she, she has joined our church. Would you grant a letter of transfer? She followed through on that. It's, a, it's, it's just a miracle of God. But I think about that. Who's Paul? Who's Paul? Paul, you understand, was was a a, a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, what that meant was he was really into God. He thought that the law of God and the sovereignty of God applied to everybody, not just to priests and religious people. He thought that the sovereignty of God should be played out in the marketplace and in the business uh, world and and, and in the school settings. And he thought God was God everywhere over everybody, not just of the priests in the temple. In other words, he was really, really devoted to God. One day he was on, on his way to Damascus because he loved God so much he couldn't stand Christians lying about him, saying that Jesus was his son and that Jesus was the Messiah sent by God. And so he's on his way to a city called Damascus, and on his way there he has this blinding light that stops him, and a voice from heaven says, Saul, which was his name at the time, you know, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. Things changed for Paul right at that moment. He knew Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Man risen from the dead is the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's Christ. He died for our sins. It just all fell into place for Paul right at that moment. And so when you hear this, you know, it's not like Paul had the academic degrees or or anything. All, All you're reading here is Paul, who became a great proclaimer of Jesus Christ because of how Christ had changed his life. He's really into this Jesus thing. It says, Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus, one sent by Jesus on a mission. In other words, his whole life was defined by Jesus. You're starting to see the answer already, aren't you? What is the answer for, for a murky, sort of uh, unclear uh, vision of Christ? What's the answer? Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul said, I'm an apostle of Christ. He laid claim to my life. I said, yes. He told me to go. I went. He told me what to say, and I spoke. He has shaped my life and molded my life. That's why when he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's not a throwaway line. That's not a little thing on a business card. That's Paul's life. Jesus Christ is Lord. Must go quickly by the will of God. Again, that, that determines all of Paul's life. Timothy, our brother. Timothy was probably the, the secretary who actually wrote down the letter as Paul was writing it later on in the letter. Paul would pick up the pen and say hello to the folks. So, so Paul says, I'm writing to you this to you as one who's sold out to Christ, whose life is determined by Christ, one whose life is completely shaped by the will of God. Two, this is verse two, to the saints... We've, we've lost touch with the meaning of the word saints. We think it's somebody who's got a star on the, on the Christian walk of fame or something. No, a saint is every believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, the word saint comes from the Latin. The Greek for it is hagaus. It just means someone who is being made holy. Someone who is being made holy the way God is holy. It's someone who has been set apart for the purposes of God. He's saying, look, look, readers. You're a saint. You've been set apart by God. God is making you holy. This, this, is, this is what God is doing in your life. That should be the focus. As opposed to the focus of, well, my focus in life is getting a great education so I can get a great job, so I can have a great income, so I can have a great life, so I can die. I just threw that in. You didn't think about that. And what is our focus? I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like him. That's what Paul's saying. He says, that's who you are, Colossians. You're saints. You're supposed to be holy. And faithful brothers, that, he got the word faith in. Faithful brothers in Christ, that fellowship going on at the church, Colossae, we talked about that. Now, the, the, the very next line, this is the last line we look at in Colossians. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, in some ways, that, that's just, hey, how, how are you? It's a combination of the, uh, the Greek way of greeting one another, kyrie, um, which Paul puts to kairos, uh, and and uh, then the Jewish way of greeting one another, which was shalom or peace. And so you put them together again, you know, grace and peace. But actually, there's no throwaway lines in the Bible. That's actually the whole answer right there. The grace of God, peace with God in Jesus Christ. You know, that peace from God, our Father. That's from God and stuff, not from this nebulous sort of, of indistinct understanding of God from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Now, Paul has just answered the whole thing. He just answered the whole thing. The rest of it is just going to impact what's, what's, what's there. But his essential answer is, if you have blurred vision and you need clarity in a murky world, set your eyes on Christ and let Christ determine your life. Now, let me tell you why this is important. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven? How do I get into the kingdom? And they had a little discussion about the law. Jesus said, well, what's the law? And the guy says, yeah, the, the law, you know, love God, love your neighbor, and, and, and you know, uh, these other commandments. The guy says, look, I've kept these laws from, from my youth up. I'm, I'm, I'm in there, Jesus. I, I have fulfilled the law. I've kept the law. You remember the scripture says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
Because he loved him so much, he said, look, your eyesight is blurry, and here's what's distorting your vision of what we're about. It's your money. Now you go and sell all that you have, and give it to the poor. Come follow me. Set your focus on me. And at that moment, the rich young ruler had a choice. Because at that moment, Jesus had revealed to him that his actual focus was on his money, not on Christ. And the man went away, sad, because he was enslaved to great wealth. Remember the guy came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, you know, your vision isn't quite right because you need to understand that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're not going to have any place to sleep. This is not going to be a comfortable ride. What was he doing? He was sharpening the focus, giving him clarity as he looked at it. Another guy came up and said, Jesus, uh, I'll, I'll follow you. Just let me bury my parents first. The parents were uh, in middle-aged and in great health at the time. He says, you can't do that. He says, you can't, you can't keep looking back like that. You just got to have focus on who I am. Well, uh, other illustrations. I'll, I'll just close with this one. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and uh, we look at verse 14. Colossians 4, 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Luke, we know. Who's this Demas guy? We really don't know much about him. But evidently, he was one who was working side by side with Paul, someone who had bought into the mission endeavor, who, who was ad advancing the cause of Christ. This Demas was there in, in, in great company and, and well-known for it because Paul could say, Luke greets you and Demas greets you. Yeah, wow, Demas. Now turn with me to 2 Timothy. It will also be chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas, who has fallen in love with the world, has deserted me. Does your heart break? Do you see somebody here who was so close to getting it right? breathed in the air of his culture, breathed in the confused signals all around him from the society and the world around him, took his eyes off the goal, took his eyes off Christ, lost focus, and is now found a deserter. We don't judge the salvation state of Demas. We simply say he was missing out on what the Christian life is all about. That's how important it is to have a clear focus, to have clarity in a murky world, to know who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and what that means for our lives. We're going to be looking at the letter to the Colossians so that we can have that kind of clarity. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, I thank and praise you that these things that are beyond us, 
your Holy Spirit works in our lives. Father, because of our weakness, the shallowness of our thinking, the narrowness of our understanding, we don't always have the right focus. But Father, I pray your Holy Spirit always calls, call us back. Always bring us to that point where all we see is Jesus and him alone. Father, this morning I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to bring that one who does not know Christ to the point of confession, to bring the brother and sister who's in love with the world to turn and to love Jesus and love him alone. Father, for your glory, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.